Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 115 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Uh, I want to just dive right in because there's some stuff I want to talk about, and as it as it turns out, you guys have some questions that are just like, ooh, these are all things I would love to discuss. So, Tavo Borrego sent in the following request for a topic. He said, Do you believe that movie theaters will come back to the way they were before? Or do they need, or do they need to do something different in order to attract people again? And I think that this is a very uh, timely question, as right now there are new rumors arising that Wonder Woman 1984 is going to get bumped into 2021 that despite Warner Brothers being somewhat bullish about trying to get Wonder Woman in theaters by Christmas or on Christmas, uh, it looks like they're going to be moving it to 2021. And if I can just discuss that part of this for a moment, um, I'm fine with that. I honestly kind of feel like it would only be natural to just, if we all just pretend that 2020 didn't happen and all the movies that were going to come out in 2020... You just come out on those same dates, but next year. So, you know, we already know that Wonder Woman is a proven commodity in June. That's when her first film came out and did record numbers, and it was just the right time for that movie. And that's why it was such like a victory when Wonder Woman 1984, after a few different, you know, shifts with, with dates, which is actually kind of funny when you think about it, because there's been all these shifts thanks to COVID, but even prior to COVID, Somewhere like two years ago, that date shifted around a couple of times. You remember that? And Patty Jenkins kind of had to come out and do a little damage control and like explain like, guys, you're making a lot of, you know, a big deal out of nothing. You know, we want to open in June. We don't want it because I think originally they were trying to get it out in like November of 2020 or something like that. And uh, there was a shift. So this Wonder Woman 1984 has been shifting around for a while. But, um, sorry, that was just a little bit of a tangent. Um, but yeah, so I kind of feel like, you know what? Wonder Woman is a proven commodity in June. So let's just, it makes sense to me that just, let's just move it a year. And while we're at it, move all these movies that were supposed to come out into their same original release dates. You know, there was no time to die. The latest James Bond, which was supposed to come out in at the end of April. And then, you know, everything went to hell in March. Um, what about Ghostbusters? The new Ghostbusters, what is it? Afterlife, the new one? You know, may as well give that its original April release date. You know, my point is, give all those movies their original release dates just delayed by a year. I, I'm t like, to me, the logic checks out. If we're just basically looking like, let's just skip over 2020. Let's just act like this insane year didn't happen. And let's just, you know, let's just continue as if nothing. Um, but, you know, I, I, I know that the studios are going to start feeling pressure and then they're going to start. I mean, because we don't know how long this thing is going to take. You know, we don't know how long until there's going to be a vaccine. We don't know how long till there's going to be enough people who've been vaccinated to warrant just a 100 percent reopening. We also don't know what people's habits are going to be. 
when the pandemic's over. You know, there's probably going to be a lot of people for a bunch of years who are not going to be all that excited about congregating and going to movie theaters and being inside of, you know, dark rooms with no windows with a bunch of strangers. It might be a while. So, you know, that's another thing to consider. You know, while I would love to just let's skip 2020 and open everything in 2021 as if nothing, unfortunately, we don't know. So, you know, it's going to be fascinating to see what ends up on a streamer, what other types of gambles they try, Um, you know, because honestly, when it comes to the, the theatrical experience, it's been something. And now this gets me back to Tavo's actual question. Sorry for the tangent. But... You know, what the theater industry has been trying to do over the course of the last 10 years or so is their answer to slumping ticket sales is to raise the quality of the experience, to give you more amenities. You know, I'll never forget around 10 years ago, uh, my local AMC, the, the Fresh Meadows, suddenly became like the pilot theater for all of New York City. I mean, imagine that. Not, you know, not Manhattan, not one of the bigger theaters, not like the AMC that's on 42nd Street in Times Square. No, the one that's in my little nick of the woods in Queens, they converted it into the reserved seating, into the big like lounge chairs, the the the, the big leather sofa recliners and all of, and they didn't raise the ticket price at all. I'll never forget. That. I'm like, "Wait a minute. So I can reserve my seat. I'm going to have a crazy comfortable seat that I can basically like lay down in and you're not going to charge me more?" It was, I, I I mean, listen. It was like the coolest thing in the world to me at the time. I'm like, this is this is the best. But, you know, th- that was sort of began on, on my end here in New York is where AMC started basically develop, developing and un- unfurling this like, we're going to give you a deluxe experience because the market research was starting to show that people, you know, more and more people were staying home, that as the quality of home theaters raises as people get you know bigger better TVs and enhanced you know surround sound home systems as the overall quality of the home theater experience rises so decreases the desire to go to a movie theater you know in other words if you can replicate near movie theater like conditions at your house and still now have the ability to pause the movie when you got to go take a leak and you don't have to worry about who's sitting in front of you or behind you. Are they going to be talking through the movie? All that sort of stuff. You don't have to worry about it, you know? And, and, and for a lot of people, you know, they've stopped going to theaters because they, you know, they've got it good at home. So what the theaters have been trying to do is, oh yeah, well, we'll make it even better, you know? So, you know, I, I know now that the AMC out in Levittown, out in Long Island, was converted into a dine-in. And I know that that uh, the Alamo Drafthouse chain of theaters also has this whole thing where you can get liquor and food and snacks delivered directly to your seat. And I think, I mean, I think they're onto something over there, by the way. I don't know if anyone has the opportunity to go to an Alamo draft house, wherever it is that you guys live. But if you've got an opportunity, if it's a decent drive, I think it's worth it. 
because it's a pretty unique theatrical experience where, yes, not only is there the cool thing where you can order drinks and and basically a three course meal directly to your to your seat with your little tray. And there's a waiter, you know, there's a server who comes and brings you your stuff during the movie. Not only is there that, but there's all these cool like theme nights and cool like vintage trailers and other quirky things that they do prior to the movies where like they'll even be like trivia or they'll be all, you know, they make it like an interactive, very sort of fan centric experience. And that sort of stuff to me, you can't replicate at home. And I suspect that a lot of theaters are going to start offering like more for that. You know, up until now, the quote unquote contract that movie theaters make with us is we're going to give you a big screen, some loudspeakers, some popcorn and soda and candy, and that's it. You know, we're just going to give you that and you're on your own. Now they're going to have to, you know, little by little they have been, but overall they're going to have to start offering more. They have to give you more incentives. They have to make the theatrical experience more special so that people will want to leave their homes to go experience these as, as a more sort of communal thing. And circling back to something I brought up a couple episodes ago where, you know, COVID and the pandemic may be the end of movie theaters as we know it. I also brought up that like, you know, I think in the place, in the place of the current theatrical model, I think something else, something special may arise from it. You know, a more like fan centric experience with theme nights and 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 retro movies that show at the local theater. You know, things have gotten so corporate over the years. The big chains, you know, I remember they used you used to have variety. You used to be able to go. You know, there were lots of theaters that were showing movies that maybe came out six months ago, or you know, every theater kind of had its own flavor. All oh, these, you know, that theater is known for showing all the blockbusters. This one is the one known for kind of like the studio indies, the ones that are a little more off the beaten path. This one's pure art house, where it's stuff you can only find here. You know, I liked when theaters had more of their own unique personalities, and little by little. That's all been going away and it's just been, you know, very, just a very, um, you know, uh, homogenized, corporate, sanitized theatrical experience. And I feel like part of the renaissance of what's going to happen with movie theaters moving forward is that they're going to have to try to find a way to engage their audience more than just we're going to give you a movie theater. We're going to give you a whole experience. And something else now that I like a new sort of wrinkle is I also think they would be wise to start really pushing the monthly membership angle, really push that where for some, you know, low rate, whatever it is, $20, $30 a month, you can see as many movies as you want. You know, I think that is sort of the, the, the key because most people will go, all right, 20 bucks, you know, for, for people who like going to movies, you know, you hear, oh, okay, for 20 bucks, 25 bucks, whatever it is, I can go to any, you know, th this movie theater as many times as I want throughout the month to see a movie. That's worth it to me. And then what ends up happening is that recurring charge just starts accumulating. You know, like that's how businesses make a ton of money. I think the monthly memberships essentially making it like, think about it like, 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 like a gym membership. It's like applying the gym membership model 
to movie theaters where you're paying that monthly fee with the idea that you're going to go there. And when you do go, you get a lot out of it and you can really take advantage of it. But a lot of people don't even end up doing that. But you'll spend that, you know, that, that monthly charge will go and you'll like having the freedom, whether or not you're actually going. But meanwhile, the movie theater is making all of that membership money. So I feel like that might have to be part of the evolution also to really lean into those club memberships where, you know, you get people to pay that monthly fee and that's kind of, you know, part of your way of trying to hook people. And I feel like a lot of the hardcore, you know, the, the, the types of people who are more willing to leave their homes because they want to go to theaters because they really crave that whole social experience of seeing this in a room filled with strangers and going on that journey together. You know, for, for that kind of, for that crowd, it's going to be a pretty easy sell if you're like, hey guys, you hardcore movie fans, here is a reasonably priced monthly membership and maybe they can make a, an, another incentive too where like, you know, you also get, you know, uh, like exclusive dibs to when it goes digital later on or something like that. You know, like, you know, I, I think that the, the, the monthly membership, basically almost like treating movies like like a gym membership. I think that might be part of the evolution as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I think overall the theaters, you know, the theater industry has, you know, their answer to your question, Thabo, has been, you know, we're going to just keep giving you more and more stuff to, to, to try to make the experience here, you know, better. You know, you want more comfortable seating? Bam, more comfortable seating. You want to not worry about being late to your movie because you have reserved seating, so it doesn't matter what time you show up? Bam, we're going to give you that. You know, you want to be able to you want to be able to order a, a nice cold beer and a burger straight to your chair as you watch the latest Fast and Furious movie. Bam, here it is. You know, the, the, the theaters are basically trying to roll out the red carpet to make it as welcoming as possible. But I think moving forward, they're going to have to, like, step that up and they're going to, you know, it's it's I think that's going to be what happens. And I think it's going to become more of a niche, a niche market. I think, you know, the people who want to go to theaters, they might be in like the minority, but they're going to be the ones who keep the whole theater experience alive. I think we're going to lose probably, you know, a, a, a lot of locations for, you know, actual movie theaters are probably going to have to disappear. But yeah, I kind of think that's where, that's where we're headed. Um, so I hope that will, I hope that answered your question. Okay. Uh, Matt Vernier, uh, you know, contributor to Revenge of the Fans, ace reporter himself, Matt Vernier, asked, would you rather be attacked by one Mandalorian-sized Baby Yoda or 10 Baby Yoda-sized Mandalorians? Hmm, Matt, I I've thought about this long and hard, and that's what she said. And I, I, I got to say with... Um, one Mandalorian-sized baby Yoda. Uh, I, I think I might stand a better chance because I mean, he's just so cute. He won't want to hurt me. I'm a nice guy. If, if there's a bunch of little tiny Mandos, I mean, even one tiny Mando could probably take me. I'm, just, I, I'm, not, I'm not the fighter that I used to be. 
So that is my official answer. I will. I would rather be attacked by one Mandalorian-sized Baby Yoda than ten Baby Yoda-sized Mandalorians. I mean, listen, I get questions and I answer them. I deliver, okay? Sometimes when I have time. Okay. Uh, Isaac Wolf. He's got a few. He's always got a few. But I think I'm only answering one. So, you know, it is what it is, Isaac. But here you go. You asked, what is the most important part of an adaptation for you? Uh, then you also asked best anime movie series. Uh, I mean, I, I really can't. And you gave me a nice recommendation. Cool. Violet Evergarden on Netflix. Uh, I guess I'll check that out. But I can't really offer any opinions because... I don't watch any anime. The only anime I've ever watched is the stuff that that you and Brandon pres prescribed me when I was going to be a guest on the Amateur Otaku podcast, which, by the way, if you're watching me and you like anime, you got to check out the Amateur Otaku podcast. And as it turns out, you know, I'm going to be showing up on there soon with Isaac and Brandon, who happens to be my cousin, by the way. Brandon's good people. Um because I want to talk about it. It's funny because I don't even remember the name of it now. It goes to show you where I'm at when it comes to anime. But we're going to talk about that like Netflix original one that I just saw the trailer for that I think is out already. Uh, see, I'm not making a lot of sense. But I, for those of you who are watching, uh, I'm going to put a graphic up of what the show is when I Google it after the fact. But there is a Netflix original anime that I will be discussing on the amateur otaku uh, in the very, very near future. So you should check that out. But okay, the question of yours that I will address, Isaac, the what is the most important part of an adaptation for you? Um, for me, it's just, it, it, it's about the, the, the core points of the story coming across. So if you're going to adapt a story, you know, you got to try. You, you, I know that you're not going to be able to include everything that's in a book, but as long as you transcribe those core bullet points, the things that carry that whole story from start to finish, that really show me that whole arc and represent the characters in a way that helps that story to move in the direction it's supposed to go in, I'm a pretty happy guy. But I also have a very open mind about what that could mean. You know, it's, it's, I'm not one of those people who like, it has to be word for word the way it was in the book. You know, for me, it's like, as long as you get me in the ballpark, as long as you accomplish the same thing that the original storyteller was trying to accomplish, I don't really mind. You know, like if I can just do a little uh, side quest here, these set photos from Matt Reeves, the Batman, have me so excited because look, we know that he's not adapting any specific story that he's basically crafted his own original story, but there are clues that he is in fact lifting you know, or borrowing elements from other stories. Like for example, there was a picture of uh, John Turturro the, as, as uh, Carmine Falcone. And would you, wouldn't you know it, he's got the scars on his cheek from the long Halloween. He's got the scars on his cheek 
from his tussle with Selena Kyle's Catwoman in The Long Halloween. Now, to me, that's huge because, okay, again, we're not adapting The Long Halloween, but stuff from that book, you know, stuff from that world has made its way into the DNA of this film. And that's something, so that's why, like, for me, like, I don't need things to be a literal adaptation. As long as, like, if, if you're lifting elements from various stories, I'm cool with that, too. As long as I understand what you're doing. As long as it's clear what you're doing. And with Matt Reeves, the Batman, it looks like he's basically, you know, he's picked the certain kinds of stories that are baked into his story. Which, of course, is not an entirely original concept. I mean, that's what Zack Snyder was doing, too. You know, when he would, when, when he did Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, there was lots of little references to things from The Dark Knight Returns. There was the thing, you know, um, what is that, Death in the Family or the, the, the where, you know, where Robin dies. You know, I haven't read all the uh, all my classic Batman stories. I'm making my way through. But The Long Halloween is my favorite so far. And I know that there's a sequel to it that I have to check out as well. But either way, um, you know. Zack Snyder touched on several different iconic Batman stories to give, show us who his Batman was. He didn't rely on it being just one. Um, and Reeves seems to be doing something similar, where this is not the long Halloween, but there are definite elements and like literally specific moments from it that are being iconically adapted into this story. So, and I say iconically because, you know, He's using the visuals from one of Batman's fam most famous stories. You know, Carmine Falcone has appeared in a lot of media. He does not always have those scars there. So to me, it's just like when I think about adaptations, you know, I guess I guess it's it's it's, it's, it's there's two ways to approach it. There's the are we going to tell this story in movie form, like what they did, for example, with the Harry Potter movies. And that's what I was kind of answering your question as originally, Isaac, thinking about the Harry Potter sort of model where they, you know, they distilled these very long, very detailed, very, you know, um, layered books and simplified them to the core beats of each story. And to me, like the Harry Potter franchise stands as one of the few shining examples of a hollow, a Hollywood adaptation of a book series being like pretty darn close to a perfect adaptation. You know, Hollywood has a long sort of sordid history when it comes to adapting books and graphic novels. But I don't think the Harry Potter films get nearly enough credit for how well they adapted the overall tone and feel and the, you know, and the way they really were true to the stories and didn't take any insane liberties. No, they, you know, J.K. Rowling saved all that for afterward with Fantastic Beasts, where things just start getting real murky with the timeline and things get real kind of, you know, uh, just overall wacky. But when it comes to those eight Harry Potter movies, I think Warner Brothers and Hollywood knocked it out of the park. But now in terms of just like if we're adapting, you know, if we're just making like new superhero movies and it's more kind of open format like this, you know, I think that's exciting when you're able to pull elements from several different books, several different versions of these characters and bake them into your story as part of the DNA. I think that's pretty exciting, too. 
So, um, yeah, for me, the main thing when it comes to adaptations is as long as the storyteller is doing it justice, I say bring on all the adaptation. I say, you know, the more the merrier. Bring, you know, br- bring it all in. What I didn't really care for, if, we, you know, if I may go there, is I did reference, you know, what Snyder did with BVS. And to me, you know, when you're sort of adapting the death of Superman, to me, like that, that is not doing it justice. You know, and listen, that might not have been his fault, although I think it was, right? I mean, there have been so many comments over the years or things said on Vero. It's hard to keep track of everything that's been said. But I don't know if it was his idea to kill off Superman in movie two. But, you know, that to me was now you're biting off something huge and you're not and you're just diving, you know, straight into it without giving it the proper build or having it really land with as much impact as it could because you didn't carefully build to what really should be. I mean, the death of Superman, that was a cultural event. I remember, you know, being a kid and seeing the stories about this on the news. I'm looking at Channel 7 Eyewitness News and DC Comics has made the decision to kill Superman. And it, like, it was like, it was news. It was a cultural, like, phenomenon when it happened. I was like 11 years old. You know, and, it, and, and, uh, and like, that's also one of the best-selling books of all time. It rejuvenated the Superman character and pop culture. From the death of Superman came ABC's Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. Like, it reignited interest in the character. After, you know, Superman uh, 4 in 1987, things kind of took a bit of a lull through the late 80s and early 90s. And then the death of Superman, which was, that's one of the reasons why they did it. You know, they, they were like, you know, the sales were starting to stagnate and they thought maybe this would bring people back. And it did. It's a huge monumental story. And. It involves the entire Justice League getting decimated along the way or, you know, members of the Justice League getting decimated and dealt with. It involves the reign of the Superman, the people who show up in his place, and then the eventual return of Superman. I mean, it's a three-act mega story, and we basically just did it in the last half hour of the movie. You know, it just felt like, you know, to answer your question you know, in one final way, Isaac, you know, I like adaptations that pull from, you know, direct comics and use the visuals and the iconography. I appreciate that a ton. But if you're not going to do it justice, if you're going to reference it and then just dive straight into something, um, yeah, I, that, that, that doesn't really do it for me. All right. So uh, hopefully that answers your question. And now Christo, Christo, uh, wanted me to talk Superman. And wouldn't you know it, I would love to talk Superman. As I sit here in my uh, Kingdom Come Superman shirt, um, you know, I I was thinking about this earlier and I just, uh, let's talk. Let's talk a little Superman. Um, Because the other day, I'm trying to think about how to start this. When I think about Superman, 
I think about actors in search of their second movies. I think about actors seeking redemption because I love redemption. I love a good redemption story, whether it's like real life, whether it's like what happened with like Robert Downey Jr. and all that he overcame and being from, you know, his, the demons he wrestled with and going to prison and all that stuff to suddenly turning it all around and doing what he's done since. So whether it's personal redemption or whether it's big screen redemption, I love that too. I think about like Ryan Reynolds. All right. When Ryan Reynolds was cast as Wade Wilson as Deadpool in X-Men Origins Wolverine, a lot of people were very excited. Like, whoa, Ryan Reynolds can do this. You know, he's got the physique. He's got the humor. You remember he, he rose to prominence in National Lampoon's Van Wilder. So he was already he already had a reputation for being that like smart ass, smug, wisecracking type of guy. So it was like, wait a minute, this is perfect casting. This is huge. And then what did they do? They ruined it. You know, the Wade Wilson that we got in X-Men Origins Wolverine, you know, he did not do the character justice one bit. And Ryan Reynolds must have walked away from that feeling like, man, that was my chance. You know, I got cast in this iconic comic book role that I like. You know, Ryan Reynolds has been a Deadpool guy for a while. So imagine being cast to be this character that you already are very invested in. And the fans know what you can do. And you know what you could do. You have all these ideas. But ultimately, you're in a movie that tarnishes your portrayal of that character. For the entire movie-going public, now they've seen a bastardized version of this character that you were so excited to play. And ordinarily, that's the end of the story. You know, that's it. But in the case of Ryan Reynolds, he got to redeem himself. Fox, with a very sort of open-minded look at their X-Men franchise at the time, back when the X-Men belonged to Fox, they allowed Ryan Reynolds to reprise the role in a movie that has nothing really to do with X-Men Origins Wolverine. And in a way, I mean, not in a way, it breaks the fourth wall and makes fun of what happened in that movie. So it's a movie commenting on another movie. I mean, you know, Ryan Reynolds was able to basically own Deadpool. He finally, he, he, he was able to show us that he was born to play this character. You know, that first Deadpool movie was a freaking sensation. People forget about that. It was a rated R movie about a character that's only really been around for like seven, you know, had only been around for about 14 years at the time or something like that. No, I'm, my math is all terrible. Like 20 something years. Okay. Right. I think he came out like 93, early 90s, around then. So here you have this newish character that not a lot of people know. He's not a household name. People forget that that movie turned a bigger profit than BVS did two months later. And BVS had Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman and the death of Superman and the Dark Knight Returns references. Yeah, it's this huge monumental story. It's the set. It, 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 it's the it's the stepping stone to Justice League. Deadpool got a got a better uh, got a better return than that did. People were more excited about that rated R movie about an obscure character than they ended up being for uh, for BVS. But that's not what I wanted to get into just now. Um, 
So, you know, Ryan Reynolds got his redemption. And that, you know, that, that, that warms my heart. But when it comes to Superman, you know, part of what I want for Henry Cavill is for him to get his redemption, for him to get a true follow-up to Man of Steel where we can really see the character grow, where we can really see, you know, him tell, uh, adapt perhaps one of Superman's more iconic books and really make the character his own and, and fly off in a different sort of direction. Because Cavill has teased plenty of times over the years that he's excited to play a more classic version of the character. And I'm dying to see him do that. And in a couple of days, we're going to be tweeting out, uh, there's going to be a hashtag to try to get Henry back. Actually, it's not in a couple of days. It's tomorrow, November 7th. I'm going to be part of a, a tweeting campaign using the hashtag Henry Cavill Superman so that just as we did on September 7th, we can get that hashtag trending worldwide as we try to get this guy a chance to tell his Superman story, to continue his Superman story. Because there's a lot of people who want to see what's next. There have been people clamoring for a sequel to Man of Steel for seven years now. So, listen, I'm in on it. I'm in on wanting to see Henry get his redemption. Because, listen, as I said, I love a good redemption story. But, but, there's another actor who I've been waiting for their redemption for 14 years, since 2006. And that's Brandon Routh. Because while a bunch of you have been in this, you know, sort of uh, whatever you want to call it, been in this limbo with your Superman for the last seven years, you know, I was in that same boat. Everyone who liked Superman Returns, everyone who wanted to see what was going to come next, even the people who didn't love it, but were still excited to see if Singer could pull off an epic sequel. Because remember, he had already sort of established a precedent with X-Men. That the first movie is just kind of like setting the table and kind of, you know, get, getting all the, the, the pieces in place. And then X2 was a whole exponential leap in quality and in storytelling and everything. X2 took, you know, everything to another level. And Singer himself had teased that he was going to Wrath of Conet with part two, with his sequel, which was going to be called Man of Steel. He was going to you know, take things to a whole other level. So for those of us who may, you know, who maybe didn't love or even really like Superman Returns, there was still curious, there was still curiosity to see what will the sequel to this be like? How will it improve on Superman Returns? And what will it add to the story that'll make it feel less um, derivative of the Reeve Superman movies? And for years that dragged on. It's something I've discussed here on the show before. So longtime listeners know of my pain. For years and years, there were all these teases. And, and even as far as right before Man of Steel became official, there was still a glimmer of hope that Ralph was going to be involved. You know, I remember when they announced that, quote unquote, Christopher Nolan was going to be 
uh, godfathering a Superman reboot. Um, I'll never, you know, Brandon Routh had this very sort of clunky uh, Kansas Clark Kent way of responding to that, where he's like, I hope the brothers Nolan will consider me for their movie, the brothers Nolan. But, you know, he was still like for years waiting for that chance to play the role again. And us as fans of his, we were waiting to see, is he going to get a chance to do, a, a you know, his next chapter in this story let's see him grow in the role and let's see him take what we those building blocks from the first movie and now let's see where we go from there so i you know <laughs> me quedé con las ganas you know sorry that's a cuban phrase that, that that's what we say in my family where i've just i was left wanting for years and years and then they announced Man of Steel and that it's a complete hard reboot and here's Henry Cavill and now he's the new guy, the new guy in town that I have to try to get used to. And listen, he ended up, you know, relatively winning me over, w winning me over enough to where I'm going to be, you know, tweeting out hashtag Henry Cavill Superman tomorrow. You know, he won me over enough to get me curious for what comes next. But my allegiances kind of remain at their core to Brandon Routh. And listen, I was willing to kind of let those the let that all wither away. I was gonna let it just go until I saw him in that suit for the Arrowverse crossover last year. I mean the guy has grown so much as an actor. He's so effortlessly Superman now that it's like, it just screams, this guy deserves another shot. And the beauty of it is he doesn't have to replace Henry, you know, because thanks to what's going to be going on in the Flashpoint movie, we're going to be introduced to multiple Batman. We're going to be introduced to multiple versions of, uh, you know, to the idea that there are multiple versions of these characters. So in theory, Ralph could do his thing on HBO Max, while Cavill, if they decided, could do his thing on the big screen. You know, and clearly they're not worried about that stuff because we just had Joaquin Joker, uh, Joaquin Phoenix's Joker have his own billion dollar earning movie. But we also got Jared Leto's Joker popping up in Zack Snyder's Justice League coming up soon. And then there's also rumors, there's been little like whispers that the Joker is going to factor in somehow in Reeves the Batman, even if he's not the central villain, even if he's not you know going to be the central villain for any of the next few movies. There have been teases that his Joker is also like alive in this world and that one of the, you know, the, the actors that's been announced so far is secretly playing him. So clearly... Jim Lee and DC and Warner Brothers, they're, they're not too worried about flooding the market with different versions of the characters as long as the, as long as there's a market for it. As long as the audience can, can handle that, they're going to keep cranking out alternate versions of these characters. They're into that. This whole thing is multiverse, multiverse, multiverse nowadays. So Brandon could get another appearance. And I'm not saying that because, you know, there's, you know, yes, there have been rumors, but in general now we're 
in we live in a world where that could happen. And I, as a Superman fan, I mean, that would be such a I mean, talk about a redemption story. If he were to get to adapt another Superman book, if they were to want to do even Kingdom Come, do the whole thing as a miniseries event, and you have him in there as that version of Superman, I mean, whatever the case, or an original story, you know, in my heart of hearts, nothing would make me happier than to see Routh Superman fly again. So when people ask me about what is it I want when it comes to Superman or what I think the future is for Superman and pop culture? I mean, listen, that's a complicated question. And I could talk about this for hours and hours. But all I know is that if in some version of Superman's future, there's a way to have Brandon Routh with that long red cape on playing that part and doing it the way he does it nowadays, sign me up. Nothing would make me happier. I've been waiting for that for 14 years and seeing his acting and how it's grown, because that's something that, you know, in Superman Returns, he was a young, very sort of inexperienced actor. And I remember sort of noticing that, you know, by following up with Brian Singer's uh like video diaries from the set that he was releasing on bluetights.net every week or every few weeks. By following that, somehow or other, I learned that they filmed a lot of his stuff chronologically. So a lot of the stuff in the early part of the movie, it really is from Brandon Ralph's first days on the set. And then as they wore on and we get into the Superman stuff, you know, like, that was months and months later. Like, basically, the film, you know, while most movies film out of sequence, when it came to Brandon Routh's portrayal of Superman, a lot of his arc was shot chronologically. And I swear to this day, you go watch that movie and you watch his acting grow from the beginning of the movie to the end. Where in the beginning, he seems a little nervous a little tentative, his Clark, which is supposed to be a little timid, but was way more timid than I think he was even supposed to be. To me, it always read like Ralph was like still just kind of finding his bearing, suddenly being at the center of a $250 million Superman movie. You know, I feel like his portrayal early in the movie, you could feel that nervous 23-year-old with the pressure on his shoulders. And by the end, you see what could be a very special Superman. So if that was true in 2006, where it looked like he grew as an actor over the course of just the months of filming that movie, he's grown so much since then that his, his the scenes he had, both as Clark Kent and as Superman in the Arrowverse Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover, all his scenes, I thought, that's that's Superman. There he is. There's no, like, I don't have to take an imaginary leap. I mean, the suit was gorgeous. He filled it out like Superman should fill it out. He had the voice. He had everything. I mean, it was, 
you know, it was it, it was it was uh, it was a pretty special experience seeing you know, him back and hearing the John Williams music again. It was like that is the Superman I grew up on. That's my guy. That is my Superman. And now if HBO Max could somehow lead to me getting more of that, I mean, I'm insanely giddy at the prospect of it. And one of these days, I'm going to start laying out for you guys my like my pitch, because I have two different Superman stories that I want to tell. And they're very different and because they have different, you know, they're for different types of projects. One is basically if we're going to treat this like a serious HBO Max miniseries event or or not even necessarily a miniseries but treat it like Watchmen like an eight episode with Hollywood production value treated seriously with grit and amazing you know overall style and cinematography and strong scripting so I have a Superman that's geared towards that sort of treatment and then I have Superman that's more a traditional like film trilogy. If they were to want to, you know, either reboot it or possibly we could, I, we, I don't think in my reboot we could have Cavill in it. So if I pitch that one, it's, it's, uh, it's in the hypothetical that we're full on rebooting. Because I don't really have a story in mind that continues anything that we've seen so far. I kind of have an all, like I have a from scratch reboot idea that I want to share with you guys. Um but yeah, so when it comes to Superman, you know, that, that that's where my head's at these days, where I'm really happy that they're bringing all these Batman in and that they're opening the, the, the doors to have all these different versions of these characters. Because deep down, I'm waiting for Brandon Routh to get his redemption, just as I'm hoping Henry Cavill ultimately gets his. Although, if, you know, if, if I'm being honest... If I had to choose one or the other, if for some reason there was like a genie who showed up and they were like, all right, you can either get more Brandon Routh Superman or more Henry Cavill Superman. I'm sorry. I'm going with the Routh Superman. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But it's just the truth. But that said, hashtag Henry Cavill Superman. Let's try to get that man his cape back so that we could see what kind of story he would want to tell. And look, you know, I think ultimately, if we see him back, if we see Henry Cavill Superman back, the person we're going to have to thank for that is Dwayne Johnson. And I've brought this up before. But I really think that because of the way that Dwayne is interlocked with DC, where it's not just him as an, as an actor being hired to be in a DC project. No, he's coming on as a producer. He's coming on as an entire brand with his Three Bucks production company. And he's dying to interact with Superman. He's got Henry Cavill in his stable there at three bucks because Danny Garcia, his ex-wife, manages both of them. So if we get more Henry Cavill Superman, which I think we're gonna, I think it's going to be tied very closely to the Shazam Black Adam sort of corner of the DC Films universe. And what's interesting about that is it's kind of a double-edged sword. Because on the one hand, okay, that keeps Henry alive. It, 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 granted, not in the capacity we'd like. It doesn't give him his own movie. 
but it gives him a prominent role in one or two of these upcoming Shazam Black Adam movies. Because in my mind, it's all linked. I, you know, I know that they've been very sort of like hesitant to come out and say it. But listen, Black Adam is one of Shazam's, you know, his arguably his biggest villain. So they're going to have to be building towards that, even if they're not playing that hand right now publicly too hard. So the way I see it, <clears throat> we're going to have Black Adam, we're going to get into Shazam 2, and then that's ultimately going to lead to a Black Adam Shazam movie. So I feel like Superman can have a place in any or all of that. And I could see how Dwayne Johnson and his considerable clout could make that happen. So... The reason I say it's a double-edged double sword, though, is that on the other hand, we're learning that something that's true in one of these movies or one of these franchises is no longer necessarily going to be true across all of DC films, right? Because with DC, you know, with the Flash movie, we're going to be opening the doors on this thing and showing the audience alternate version you know the, the, bringing michael keaton back basically gives jim lee and dc and whoever is in charge of the film end of things it's going to give them the ultimate creative freedom when it comes to do we have to use henry cavill for superman or can we start from scratch because having michael keaton in there and the message that's going to send and having ben affleck in there all in the same movie it's going to basically give the head of DC, all the creativity and wiggle room in the world with which to do things with Superman. They couldn't do that prior to all this multiverse stuff. So prior to all this, if they were going to use Henry in Shazam or Black Adam, then they would almost feel like you'd have to think like an obligation to, well, okay, if that Superman is living on, then naturally any Superman project that we're going to produce for theatrical release needs to have that Superman because he is still the active Superman. But now that we're in this whole multiverse thing with the multiple Jokers and the multiple Batman and the multiple Flashes and the multiple everything, now they don't have an obligation to use Henry Cavill anymore. So it's really going to be, I think we're going to see him in those Shazam Black Adam movies. I suspect that if somehow there isn't a Superman reboot in development by the time those movies come out, because remember, this is all going to take time. You know, the Shaz there are stars of Shazam 2 who haven't even seen the script yet. Shazam 2 is not filming yet. And Black Adam is not filming yet. So it's going to take a while for us to get to these places where we're seeing Henry Cavill back as Superman. So assuming that in the years leading up to those movies, where we get to see Henry again, if there isn't a reboot already on the way, then, yeah, it stands to reason that if Henry were to create a lot of buzz in those movies, and suddenly there's this whole, like, you know, huge groundswell of people who, like, love this version of Superman, then I could see him after that getting his own movie again. But again, we're talking, I mean, it might be 2025 at that point, 12 years after Man of Steel. So we're really kind of stretching it here, you know? So I, I unfortunately think what's most, what's most likely 
is that the next time we see a solo Superman, it's going to be with a different actor. Not Brandon Ralph, not Henry Cavill, but an all-new guy is going to be the star of the next solo Superman. But we're still going to see Henry Cavill Superman again, I think, in the Dwayne Johnson universe within DC. You know, because listen, he's getting a lot of creative carte blanche. He's bringing in the Justice Society. You know, Dwayne Johnson has been very hands-on with this whole Black Adam verse that he's building out. And we know Shazam's part of that. So I think he's going to get his long-awaited confrontation with Superman. Fans of Henry Cavill's Superman are going to get to see him in that confrontation. So they're going to feel good to have Henry back. But ultimately, I think we might have to say goodbye to the notion of Henry getting solo movies. Just because time is of the essence. And unless it gets greenlit like tomorrow or in the next, even give it a year. Even if it gets greenlit in the next year, we're unlikely to see it until 2023, 2024. Which is going to be over 10 years since Man of Steel came out. So, you know, the clock is ticking on Henry's future and Henry's prospects for another solo movie. Because let's face it, right now and for the last several years, Warner Brothers has been lukewarm. They've been lukewarm about the idea of Henry Cavill as Superman. You know, so there's nothing that's going to change that short of his appearances in Shazam and Black Adam, possibly, if he does show up in Black Adam. Um, short of those creating a whole ton of energy, I don't think that the studio even has a real need to consider him for another solo movie. We know that they're not. We know that they're not. So regardless of my opinions on the matter, the studio is just not, they're not there right now. But I do get the sense that they would be open to the right pitch. So that's why the clock is ticking too. Because if someone comes in like a Matt Reeves, but wants to basically shepherd their own Superman, you know, trilogy, and they have this great detailed idea for what their story is going to be, and they could, you know, bring it to vivid life in the way that Reeves seems to be doing with the Batman, I think that's going to take a priority over them even considering bringing back Henry. So that's why it's, you know, time is of the essence, because someone is going to pitch a great Superman movie, and in the meantime, Henry is waiting to possibly not show up again in the role until Shazam is happening, until Shazam 2 is happening. So um, that's, uh, that, that's kind of my take on uh, you know, Henry Cavill's prospects moving forward and kind of my piece on Superman in general. Though, I got to say, with everything that's going on right now in these United States, I cannot help but feel like a really well-told Superman story would be extremely timely and extremely relevant now, right now. Something that examines what it is to be an American. Something that examines what it is to be an immigrant in America. Something that examines 
America's place in the world. But of course, using Superman as the metaphor. Because right now, one could argue that our nation is one that's at war with itself. So now let's metaphorically put that on our hero. Let's put our true blue Boy Scout hero in today's America. And I think you have a riveting story. Because I've always said, you don't have to make Superman dark and ethically complicated. You put him in a world where the world around him is compromised and ethically complicated. You tell a story similar to Entabo Borrego, by the way, callback. He sent me the Blu-ray of this. Superman versus the elite, where it's a perfect juxtaposition of a classic Superman in a modern world that wants to do without him, in a modern, cynical world that thinks that, you know, being a true blue hero or being idealistic is somehow silly and undesirable. And in that story, Superman uses what he can do to prove some pretty, you know, pretty substantial points. And I feel like if you were to borrow that element for an adaptation, now to kind of uh, loop in Isaac Wolf's question, if you were to loop in the subtext of Superman the Elite into a really timely and relevant Superman story, where on the one hand, you have Clark Kent, intrepid reporter, trying to get to the bottom of corruption on the ground level within our politics, within our elected officials, within all that. You have Clark dealing with things on that end, while you have Superman trying to deal with Brainiac. Brainiac in the form of the way we're all getting so automated, how we have Alexa and Siri, and every day there are new advances in artificial intelligence. You know, Skynet is coming soon, some might argue. Well, let's use some of that and use Brainiac, and let's adapt that into our idea for Brainiac, and how it's Brainiac who's spreading all the fake news and misinformation and trying to get Earth to destroy itself. And Superman has to somehow figure out a way to stop Brainiac. You know, th there's a lot of ways to approach a Superman story right now. But I feel like the right story right now would make Superman, hands down, the most relevant superhero of them all. At a time when many would love to have written him off as being too old-fashioned, too altruistic, too idealistic. You put him in the right story, and he could be just what we need right now. That's what I think. But uh, that's my time for this week. So until next time, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios. <laughs>